Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm Sterling Fox, and today, biomedical engineer Grant Dickey talks about serious heart injuries to fit young athletes and how to prevent them. Nerd wallet mortgage expert Clay Jarvis says good homework goes a long way to reducing anxiety over an impending mortgage renewal. Ecom 911 communications manager Kayla Butler has more examples and reasons to think twice before tying up a real emergency line. And North Vancouver councillor Tony Valente has an update on the e-scooter pilot program underway in a dozen Metro Vancouver cities. So, let's get started. Boy, I'll tell you, last Monday night watching a football game with millions of other North Americans and all of a sudden, my gosh, it, uh, it went from a football game and all the relaxing stuff that you typically get ready for on a Monday night to a, a, a medical emergency that, uh, wow, caused 70,000 people in a football stadium to go absolutely quiet. A routine tackle on that last Monday night football game almost turned fatal when DeMar Hamlin of the Buffalo Bills was injured during a play. He tackled somebody, jumped up after the tackle, and then collapsed. And it took many minutes thereafter to uh, they say he died on the field. His uh, his heart stopped. They had a defibrillator. They had CPR performed, eventually taken to the hospital in an ambulance. The good news is, and we've learned this in the last 24 hours. Uh, he's he's speaking. He's had his breathing tube remu- removed. Rather, he's been able to communicate with his teammates via FaceTime. I love you guys and that kind of stuff. So remarkable is the word the doctors are describing to uh, use to describe his recovery. So let's go back to what happened on Monday night. As we say, good morning and welcome to Grant James Dickey. Mr. Dickey is a PhD student in biomedical engineering at the University of Western Ontario. Joining us from London this morning. Grant is a BC boy, so it's the home folks calling. Grant, good morning and welcome. Yeah, good morning, Sterling. Great to hear from you. Well, it's good to have you with us. Let's talk about what uh, a lot of doctors and people, I remember hearing this as I watched the broadcast, just uh, absolutely agape at what was going on. It was such an unbelievable thing. I'm a big fan, and I was like millions of other people, all relaxed on the comfy couch, ready to watch my Buffalo Bills, well, do some damage. And then this happened, and one of the first things that came up in the live coverage was something called commotio cordis. And then a couple of days ago, I read a piece at theconversation.com entitled Damar Hamlin Injury. Was it commotio cordis? How to prevent a potentially fatal blow to the heart of young athletes, the author of which is you and a few of your colleagues at Western University. So Grant, what first of all is commotio cordis? Yeah, so commotio cordis is uh, it's, a, it's typically a rare injury that we see in athletes, but it is one of the leading causes of sudden cardiac death in young athletes. And so what really happens there is the individual, so the athlete is experiencing an impact over the heart area of their chest, mm-hmm. and the impact has to occur during a very specific time window of the heartbeat. And so that time frame is very short. It lasts for about 20 milliseconds. But if an impact occurs during that time, um, it can essentially cause the heart to stop beating, which is most likely what we've seen in the case of DeMar Hamlin. 
Interesting stuff. So, uh, but as I understand it, doing a little homework, and with a guy like you coming on the show, Grant, you can you can bet your bottom dollar I've been doing some homework on this, in addition to having watched the thing in the first place. But as I understand it, commotio cordis typically happens to even younger people. Mr. Hamlin is 24 and in positively peak physical condition. The average age of commotio cordis killing young athletes is young teenagers, correct? Absolutely. I'm really impressed to see you've done your homework there. Um, that's absolutely correct. So the average age that we see is around 13 years old. And of course, in the case of DeMar Hamlin as a 24-year-old NFL superstar, um, that is quite rare. But we do have cases of it happening in older individuals. It really can happen at all ages. But the most common we see is those youth athletes. And obviously, it's incredibly tragic when you have children out playing baseball, hockey, lacrosse, football, and these incidences occur. So, and I'm quoting now from the article that you wrote, you and your colleagues wrote at the conversation, quote, as a PhD student in biomedical engineering, I specialize in commotio cordis. My colleagues and I research how we can, can create safer chest protectors and safety regulations to prevent this tragic inf- incident, rather, from occurring in sports globally, close quote. So, uh, you said it's a very rare situation, Grant, but how frequently does it happen? So in terms of frequency, um, you can expect approximately 20, 20 cases per year. But I think the, the really big thing that we want to highlight is the actual survival rate from it. So the, the survival rate is approximately 50%, um, which is really, you know, you don't want to be flipping a coin here to decide whether you're going to live uh, or, or die on the playing field. Right. Sports, something that's supposed to be healthy, you know, exercise, get kids out playing. So that's the thing that we're really highlighting, and that's why we want to stress the importance of the use of AEDs and defibrillators on playing fields, as well as, as you mentioned, the safety with chest protectors. We really need to continue to use our research to improve upon this and prevent these cases from happening. Typically, though, uh, when a football player, and I'm thinking of those big shoulder pads they wear in football and hockey as well, there is some kind of upper chest protection that links the two uh, shoulder pads, but it's not. it doesn't drop down far enough and cover the actual heart area. Is that the concern, Grant? That's absolutely it. Um, so what we find is that a lot of these uh, chest and shoulder pieces, they have great protection in a lot of other areas, but the heart can be, uh, I guess, somewhat missed in terms of that added protection to prevent against commotio cordis. And even in the case of DeMar Hamlin's, uh, the, sh- the shoulder protection that he was wearing, um, from all the pictures that I've seen, it really seems like there's little to no protection around the heart, the, the, the side of the body there where the heart can be exposed. Um, so that is definitely a, a major piece of importance for us and a major piece of interest for us uh, over the next coming years of my PhD to try to improve upon that chest protector. Indeed. So and to, going back to the young people who uh, have about a 50% survival rate on an annual basis when these uh, incidents occur, uh, how are they, uh, in the case of, of Damar Hamlin, Uh, They had uh, paramedics on the field uh, administering CPR, and then the defibrillator came out. Is that what uh, revives these younger kids when it happens to them as well? Absolutely. So the in the case of Demar Hamlin, particularly, it's amazing. He had the absolute best medical staff on site, uh, immediate CPR, AED defibrillation, which is the exact, I guess, treatment we would say for commotio cordis. But you can imagine on like a little league diamond or a lacrosse field yeah. or 
a recreational hockey game, uh, perhaps they don't have the exact same quality medical professionals on site. And so I think it's really important that trainers, coaches, parents, they understand the importance of AEDs and they understand the importance of understanding the signs of cardiac arrest in athletes. Interesting. Now, um, the other part of that, and I think, if anything, it's pretty much a certainty grant that the awareness level of commotio cordis, period, I mean, if we're talking about it on the radio here in Vancouver, about something that happened in Cincinnati, and this one traveled right around the world. I watched the BBC and other sources, and they were covering this within a matter of minutes in some cases. So it's pretty safe to assume that the awareness level has indeed been elevated. So uh, taking that uh, and making or taking advantage of that elevated awareness, how does one go about organizing safety standards? Yeah, and you know what? I have to thank you and everyone else who have had the pleasure of joining and discussing this because the increasing awareness uh, helps everyone out a lot. It's going to uh, assist in the research. And so I think in terms of our lab group personally, we're spending some time trying to recreate these scenarios to understand what part of the chest protector that we can add to uh, prevent these cases from happening, how we can try to uh, essentially create uh, a space for sports to be safer in terms of commotio cordis. Mm-hmm. And so right now we're working on some studies and we're going through some data and we'll continue to try to make collaborations, work with organizations as well as companies, uh, sports companies to really help make the chest protectors safer. Is he, would another aspect of it all also somewhere down the line, Grant, be the hope that sports organization, and we're talking again, you mentioned lacrosse and Little League baseball and, you know, kids stuff, but all of those sports organizations would come to the point where they would all have some kind of defibrillator uh, gear available for all of their events. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think there's some pretty good standards in Canada and I believe in America as well. So I think North America has has pretty good standards for defibrillators. I think one of the major concerns actually is Europe. So from my understanding, the regulations for having AEDs and defibrillators on site um, is not the same standard in Europe as it is in North America. So that definitely is another goal of ours. Um, and just to continue creating regulations. Currently, there is some basic regulations that exist for commotio cordis for both baseball and lacrosse chest protectors. Okay. But those are non-existent for both hockey and American football. And so part of my PhD will be to further progress and hopefully establish some of those safety regulations for both of those sports. As you do your PhD homework, speaking of homework, uh, have you been able to contact or connect with people in sporting organizations? And what are they saying about this? Yes, yeah, so I'm really glad you asked that because that's what I'll be doing on Monday. Uh, I've been reaching out and having a lot of contact with media right now. And I think the next steps is for us to reach out to organizations uh, within the hockey and American football community, uh, even perhaps the, the NHL, the NFL, um, trying to progress our research, trying to establish those connections and say, hey, what can we do? How can we work together and make sports safer for all athletes involved? Indeed. Well, keep up the good work. Grant Dickey, the pride of Richmond, B.C., on the line this morning from Ontario. Thanks for joining us, Grant, and do, uh, do keep up the good work. It's a great piece of the conversation, and uh, we wish you considerable success with your Ph.D. Uh, defense and going forward. Thank you so much, Sterling. I really appreciate it. 
Clay Jarvis on the line from Toronto. Mr. Jarvis, the top guy for mortgage and real estate at NerdWallet in uh, in Canada, nerdwallet.com, uh, here to talk about mortgage renewals, a fact of life for millions of Canadians in this 2023 year. Many of them describe the whole thing as a frightening process. Clay Jarvis, good morning and welcome. Hey, good morning, Sterling. How's it going? All right, thanks. Good to have you with us. Happy New Year, Clay. Why do you think so many people are frightened by the process of renewing their mortgage? Is it just the fact that they know with the interest rate bump since they've got the first one, the next one's going to cost a whole lot more? Uh, I think that's the primary concern these days. Um, mortgage rates today are a lot higher than they were, well, especially higher than they were in January at the peak of the market. But they're averaging, you know, maybe one and a half, two percent higher than they were about five years ago. And, you know, Canadians, they love their five year mortgage products. So yep. A lot of people will be coming up uh, to renewal this year. And I think a lot of them are freaked out about how much more they might be paying. Um, I've been running a little bit or a few numbers through some of our mortgage calculators. And, uh, you know, a two percent increase on your mortgage, let's say you have a five hundred thousand dollar mortgage you know at five percent one at seven percent the difference to your monthly payment is about six hundred dollars a month and uh i don't know too many homeowners who have that much space in their budget exactly well i have a friend who just had to renew his mortgage and his payments went up a thousand bucks a month and he's lucky because he can afford it but it was it's making life a little a little a little less comfortable that's for sure yeah, it's brutal. I mean, it, it used to be home buyers who were under all this pressure, and now it's it's time for homeowners to to for their term in the for their time in the barrel. So we've seen Clay just as anecdotally an aside. We've seen the impact this has had on housing sales in your market of Toronto here in Vancouver, still the nation's most expensive, and in fact, coast to coast across Canada, housing sales are way down. Is that just a byproduct of the fear that all of this is generated? Um, I think I think it's really a product of how much people can borrow. You know, real estate is really a story of how much financing people can get. And when mortgages become expensive, people can't get them. And when they can't get those mortgages, they can't purchase houses. So a lot of those in the real estate sector are pushing to have the stress test removed. They say, you know, make it easier on people. Is that a good idea? Uh, a lot of people, I think a lot of people in the real estate industry would tell you it's a good idea That's because sure. it would help people, it would help people buy homes. But if it wasn't for the stress test, there would be a lot of people in a lot of trouble right now with these rapid rises in, in variable mortgage rates. I'm looking at some of the tips that are offered online by Manulife and a lot of these other big, big, big companies. And they're saying things like start shopping four months before the term is up. Consider your financial goals. Outline your mortgage needs. Be ready to renew in the last 30 days. And then they talk about the law that the, that the lender has to send you all the information in a, in a timely manner. Uh, but in terms of preparing oneself for this experience, experience, especially if it's been a few years, what else would you add by way of advice, Clay? Well, the one piece of advice that I would give people is it's okay to shop around. Um, You are going to get an offer from your, your lender before it's time to renew. You don't necessarily have to take it. And if the cost is is a concern for you, it's okay to start looking at what other lenders are offering. Um, but you do have to keep in mind, and this is another piece of advice that I would give, if you're going to move to a different lender, you need to go through another stress test. Right. And you will be stress tested at a level that is based on today's mortgage rates rather than what you were approved for five years ago. And that could be you know, a pretty high barrier 
to get over for some people. I'm looking at nerdwallet.com right now, Clay, and it says here, looking at mortgage options, and they're, you're looking at five-year mortgages, at one of them offering at 4.54%, a lot of them in the roughly 4.5% range. How rare is that these days? Well, I mean, those are very, very, those are rates being offered to people with excellent credit, um, don't really know what your down payment situation is there. Uh, just because you're seeing a rate posted under 5%, it's not a guarantee that that's what you're going to be offered. Right. Uh, looking at some of the, the Bank of Canada's recent data, a lot of major lenders like our banks are offering rates kind of more in the 6%, 6.5% range. Yeah. Um, so when you're looking at those those mortgage pages on, on certain websites, you can't guarantee that you will be getting that lowest rate. Clay, how important is it for civilians, that is people not in the finance business, in the mortgage brokerage business, how important is it for them when it comes time, and we're talking big numbers and impactful uh, moves here, how important is it to seek the advice and support of a mortgage professional? Oh, I, I think in a time like this, reaching out to either your bank's mortgage advisor or to a mortgage broker is imperative. Um, You know, we can crunch numbers as well as we can, but these are people who are professionals. You know, they, they know how to look at your finances, look at what's going on in the mortgage market and try to reconcile them in a way that will save you money in the long term. So I would, I would always, always recommend people reach out to at least their bank's mortgage advisor to get some advice, just general advice on, you know, what the market is like. And if you really want somebody to go out there and compare deals for you, talk to a broker. That's you know, right. It's not going to cost you anything. That's right. And, and it also won't affect your credit record because they'll do the shopping around on your behalf, won't they? Precisely. And, and really, it, you know, they're, they're a middleman who can look, weigh the different options for you, talk about the long-term implications of each product. You know, and those are things that the average home buyer, especially a first-time home buyer, it's a skill that you're just not going to have. Clay, you've been around the block a few times in this business. You've done a lot of writing on mortgage and real estate over the years. What percentage of the current homeowners are not going to be able to renew their mortgage because they just can't handle the, the increase? Well, you know, I don't have an actual number for that, but I can tell you that in some recent statements by Bank of Canada, or not Bank of Canada, sorry, the Royal Bank of Canada, um, they're not expecting a lot of their customers to have to renew until 2025. Ah. And by the time that rolls around, hopefully mortgage rates will be in a less uh, panic-inducing position. Um, so it's not necessarily going to be a huge a huge shock to the market, I don't think. And also, if you think about it, rates were at historical lows for, you know, 21, beginning of 2022. If people, um, oh, sorry, if people re, oh, man, <laughs> I just lost my train of thought. I'm so sorry, everybody. Oh, that's okay. Um, There's lots. They refinanced. That's it. Sorry, God. I'm so sorry. It's early over here. I know. Um, if, uh, if they refinance their mortgages during the pandemic, then they're going to have access to those really low rates for the next, you know, three to five years. And if they're in that position, they're lucky, and they're and, and it's those who are who are compelled to renew this year who are more than a little antsy about the process. Clay, good to have you aboard this morning. My producers, plural, telling us it's NerdWallet.ca where folks should Thank go you. first. I was I was going to mention that to you. Thank you very much. Got-
it is that time of year. They've crunched all the numbers over at 911. Kayla Butler is on the line again. It's time to talk about the most unnecessary 911 calls of the year. Kayla, good morning and welcome back. Good morning to you, Sterling, and thank you so much for having me again. Well, it's great to have you back with us, Kayla, because you and I have done this before, and it is, of course, the annual year-end accounting of 911 calls. And I think it's very important to begin the conversation with the fact that 2022, Kayla, produced over 2.1 million 911 calls in British Columbia alone. That's a new record, isn't it? That is the busiest year that we have experienced at Ecom uh, in you know more than 20 years of servicing the province. Um, almost a two percent increase compared to last year, which of course was an increase compared to the year prior. So demand on emergency services is increasing year over year over year. It is more important now than ever for the public and for you know every British Columbian and visitors to our province as well to have that moment to to know how and when to dial nine one one so that they are not you know, using the resources inappropriately and taking away from those who could be experiencing that genuine life or death emergency. Yeah, this is kind of an anecdotal question for you, Kayla, but the last couple of years, of course, have been strange for all of us with lockdowns and uh, pandemics and all sorts of things. And you've noticed an increase, a gradual increase in calls to 911 year after year after year. During those two, especially lockdown year of 21, was there a significant bump because of the anxiety that that produced? We did see increases in some ways. There were certainly different demands on emergency services, particularly during those lockdown periods. Yeah. Um, you know, our list you know, last year and the year prior, of course, did look a little bit different because there were pandemic related questions that had reached 911 that certainly were not appropriate. Um, but of course, since then, you know, not just the pandemic, but of course, the opioid crisis that our province yes. is experiencing, the, the various weather events that are so unusual for at least the lower mainland part of British Columbia. I know um, up north and, and even in the Okanagan and such, the, the cold weathers and the hot weathers are a little more common, but certainly not to the same extremes that we have been seeing. Um, so all of that to say now more than ever, again, so important to know how and when to use these critical emergency resources because the demand is constantly increasing. Well, you know, we've done this before, Kayla, and yet uh, the the importance of understanding which calls are, in fact, real emergencies versus someone's just a little ticked off with life and they've got to tell somebody. Uh, it's an enormous difference. So let's uh, let's let's go to the extreme here, because this is the part of the reporting that you have done in the past and are about to do again. Uh, give us a few salient examples of calls to 911 that simply should not have been made. Well, first of all, of course, we've got, you know, number one on our list from 2022 of the calls that should not have reached 911 lines was a caller reaching out because the nozzle wasn't working at the gas station. So they had paid for their gas, went to go pump into their car and, and nothing was coming out, which super frustrating. I can only imagine, but definitely not an appropriate reason to dial 911. There, there are other options for you, you know, head into the the establishment and speak with a manager, keep your receipt and dial that number on the pump. Um, lots of resources available in that moment, but unfortunately 911 is not the appropriate one. Uh, we did see many vehicle type calls to 911 in 2022 that didn't belong. Um, someone calling in that they had a flat tire 
one person who uh, had a broken window wiper and, and someone that had even cut in line at a car wash. So, again, certainly all incredibly frustrating situations. There's there's no doubt that these callers needed help. Uh, but in those situations, not help from 911. They're not experiencing life or death emergencies. There's no crime that's happening in progress. Sure. Um, so turning to that alternative resource, whether that be a mechanic, you know, consumer concern, um, that that's really the most appropriate place to go with these types of complaints. And you know, Kayla, people understand that to a certain degree, because a lot of these calls that was some of that you've identified already begin with, look, I, I, I know this isn't a real emergency, but I didn't know who else to call. So here we go. And even though the person is making a call and tying up a 911 line, they admitted at the beginning, they knew they shouldn't be doing that. And yet they went ahead and did it anyway. It's incredibly concerning, Sterling, and and honestly, more so even than than the caller who genuinely just didn't realize uh, is that that calls and starts with, I know this isn't an emergency, but, you know, in that moment, they clearly know they need help. They know that it's not from 911, but they still made that choice to pick up the phone and, and call in. And, you know, the hope is that by issuing this this campaign, we're able to get to them and say, look, if you, if you make that call and you know it is not an emergency, you are taking away resources and, and perhaps putting someone in life or death danger by making that phone call. Now, it, it's not always simple and it's not always as clear as, as you know, some of the calls on this list. So I really do want to stress, if at any point you feel like you are in an absolute emergency situation, mm-hmm. your life is in jeopardy, your health is in jeopardy, your property is being stolen or, you know, there's a fire or you're, you're experiencing a medical emergency, dial 911. Our call takers are trained to help you assess that and redirect you. But if your inclination is to start with, you know, I, I know this is an emergency, but... Right. Please take that time to think it through. We have a fantastic alternative resources page on our website. That's nonemergency.ca that can provide a list of different resources you can reach out to by phone, through web contact forms. We also have all of British Columbia's local police non-emergency lines and their online crime reportings, as well as fire non-emergency lines also are on that website. Yeah, Kayla, one thing that came up last year that affected literally millions of Canadians, many of them right here in B.C., was the national uh, breakdown of Rogers Communications. Their entire cellular phone system went down for a matter of, well, many hours. And to many people, that was an emergency. So they called 911. You appreciate why they made the call, even though 911 could do absolutely nothing for them. You know what? Speaking purely as a millennial myself, I know that when my phone is not working, it feels like an emergency. It truly does. Uh, and that's not to say that somebody whose phone isn't working isn't experiencing an emergency. There, there are emergencies happening still, whether you know the phone networks are up or not uh, when it comes to our, our mobile devices. So completely understand why it would feel like that emergency, why somebody is urgently looking for updates. But of course, there are those more appropriate resources to turn to. I mean, CKNW, for one, I'm sure that there was reporting happening on the outage. You know, turn to your local news source, turn to, you know, the, the telecom provider's social media pages. There are lots of other places that you can look to to get the help that you're needing in those moments. But again, unless you are experiencing that life or death situation, please don't you know reach out to 911. Um, those are not information lines. All right. So any other quick examples of silliness on 911 that may be in hindsight be somewhat amusing, but stand out rather uh, loudly as being really good examples of why not to call 911, Kayla? 
Absolutely. Lots of the calls on our list are very appropriately deferred to city services or bylaw offices. You know, we had a caller call in to let us know that someone was playing basketball on a public court, but at nighttime, which, of course, there could be noise concern complaints. Sure. Um, very much a, a reason to call your city bylaws. You know, if it's after hours, reach out to your local police non-emergency line, uh, but definitely not that 911 call. Indeed. Kayla Butler, always a pleasure to do this. I regret that we only basically get to have one conversation a year, but I always look forward to it. Uh, you really do articulate the position of 911 well, and your patience with those who, well, shall we say, misinterpret the mission is remarkable. So thanks again for doing this with us, and Happy New Year, however belatedly, for 2023. Thank you so much. I hope 2023 brings you absolute magic. North Vancouver is one of 12 municipalities around Metro Vancouver participating in an e-scooter pilot project, which launched a couple of years ago to help us all learn and study new forms of transportation. It's super popular and also really annoying for a lot of people. Tony Valente sits on North Vancouver City Council and is here to talk about, well, how's it going so far? Councillor, Tony, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. Great to be with you today. Well, it's good to have you along with us, Tony. So what, have, uh, what has North Vancouver already done by way of being a participant in this project, by way of changing bylaws to accommodate e-scooters? Well, I think maybe I'll just start off, and, and I'd like to just maybe define what an e-scooter is, because I sure. think there's a lot of confusion about that. Um, these are those electrically powered kick scooters, so the ones that um, are kind of suited for kind of short trips, They've got a standing platform between the front and rear wheels, and they've got a kind of a steering handlebar in the front uh, to, to, to be able to steer with. Okay. How um, fast do they go? So that's actually a really important point is they're limited to 24 kilometers per hour under the pilot. And to be able to participate in the pilot, the city of North Vancouver had to enact a bylaw uh, where we met, uh, we defined what the e-scooters are and uh, the requirements for using them. So some of those things that they have to have to do is, they have to have a horn or a bell when they pass uh, other riders or pedestrians. They need to ride single file, and uh, they need to make sure they're not carrying more than one person. Okay. Um, where are they allowed and where are they disallowed to go? For example, are they allowed on the sidewalks? Definitely not allowed on the sidewalks. And actually, that's, that's a great point because as part of that bylaw, what we did was we actually defined where they could go, and we said they can go on local streets, um, they can go in our mobility lanes, and mobility lanes is the term that we use for our, our, our bike lanes. Okay. Um, because obviously now they're starting to serve more than just bikes, so sure. we call them mobility lanes. And then they can go in our paved multi-use pathways. So in the North End, we have uh, the Green Necklace and the Spirit Trail, and, and those are areas where um, we allow the e-scooters to go. Okay, now this has been this has been going on for a while since the uh, the city of North Vancouver agreed to participate in this pilot program. Tony, how how have you noticed a perceptible increase on of e scooter traffic in the city? To be honest, I haven't, and I, I say that because I think that the e scooters were have been out for a while, and uh, they've been around the city for some time. And I think we one of the one of a good reason to participate in this pilot was to actually start defining uh, some of the regulations around these things. This is a new technology, uh, and to be able to ensure public safety, it was really important to start putting some definitions around things. And 
Um, that was certainly one of the goals for the pilot. And, and another goal is also trying to understand the impact so that we can set policy in the future that, that makes sense. Yeah, I was just talking with our producer, Phil Figueroa, who uh, with a lot, bunch of buddies went down to a ball game in Seattle a few, uh, I guess, a couple of months ago now. And a half a dozen guys each jumped on a scooter and blasted all around town, had a fantastic time uh, and just basically dropped them when they were finished using them. And it's all about using the app and so on. Uh, do they do you have scooter e scooter rentals already in North Van or is that still to come? That's a great, another great question. So um, we do not allow e-scooter sharing in North Vancouver, so we don't have a, a Lime e-scooter share currently. And I think that's really prudent as, uh, as we're kind of doing this pilot based on people using their private scooters and we're going to learn from that, and then we can look at sharing in the future. Well, I mentioned Seattle as one example, but Tony, European cities have been dealing with e-scooters and uh, lots of them for a lot longer than we have here in North America. Is there anything that they've already identified as being problematic that North Americans can go, well, you know, we don't need to do that. The Europeans have proven already that's a, that's a dumb thing to do. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think, you know, we talk about e-scooters. These things really started coming out in 2019. And I think, you know, COVID for all of us has probably kind of messed up our perception of the years, but they started way earlier than we did. Right. Our, our pilot only started in 2022. Um, so that means that we've had the opportunity to actually incorporate a lot of the things that probably to us now seem like, like kind of no-brainers. But um, some of those have been um, obviously like not starting with the scooter sharing. A, a big issue that you've seen in a lot of European cities has been uh, share scooters being dumped in, in specific locations. Yes. We don't have that because we're not doing the sharing. Um, and and then, sorry, one other thing would be um, they hadn't all had regulations around speed. So um, our pilot started already with a focus on speed, and, and I would say a very strong focus on safety. So we have that 24-kilometer-per-hour limit on the scooters. Ah, okay. Now, we know that uh, of the dozen municipalities that are, that are involved in this pilot project, uh, the city of Richmond has an actual contract with a provider, Lime in this case, are the other 11 cities, including North Van, Tony, uh, working on some kind of negotiations with providers as well? Well, I don't think I can speak to uh, the other 11, but for the city of North Vancouver, we have Lime, but only offering um, e-bikes currently. Um, so, uh, and I'm not aware of any, any discussions around e-scooters. Uh, just, again, because we're doing the pilot and currently we've said we wouldn't, we wouldn't look at sharing. Okay, so what's the, what's the timeline associated with the pilot? When does it wrap up? And then what will the, uh, the upshot of that be? So um, the pilot concludes in April 2024, and um, it, it was a partnership with the provincial government. And I believe that the data from the pilot will help inform um, transportation policy in the city for sure, but um, potentially also changes to the Motor Vehicle Act. Because, again, like th this pilot was all about gaining information to inform uh, changes to the Motor Vehicle Act because these vehicles really aren't considered uh, under the act. Right. So uh, and you've already made some amendments to North Vancouver bylaws to accommodate the e-scooter reality on your city streets, Tony. Has the Ministry of Transport in any way adjusted any of the B.C. transportation rules with respect to e-scooters or is that still to come? I really can't uh, can't speak to that. I mean, I think the pilot was was the was the approach to um, gaining information to be able to make those changes. So I think I think that that that's part of what's the plan. Okay, so now you have an office at City Hall and you have a telephone. And since this e-scooter business began, I'm sure you've taken more than a few phone <laughs> calls from irate North Vancouverites going, Councillor, what on earth is going on? What's the big beef? What do people complain most about, Tony? 
Well, I am aware of um, uh, folks that have um, had either near misses or um, been impacted by a scooter. And I think that that's obviously something that we've tried to prevent through the safety um, requirements of the pilot. And that's definitely a learning. Um, I think as well, I've heard a lot of comments about um, people using the scooters on sidewalks, right. uh, which is also concerning and not, frankly, not, not the way to go. Um, you know, it's a transition. I think there's a, a revolution happening in the world right now with these small electric devices. Um, there's a lot of reasons why we need to embrace them. Um, you know, some of those would be, for example, in the city of North Vancouver, we certainly have a really well-documented uh, traffic issue on the North Shore. Mm-hmm. And a lot of our trips, actually 70% of our trips in the city are local trips. And so if we can enable some folks who might be able to, to take an e-scooter or take their bike and do it safely, um, that's a huge advantage for us just from a transportation perspective. And it certainly supports our goals from a climate perspective. So would you label, and it's certainly nowhere near the end of the project now that you've identified the timeline, but would you label this exercise a success so far as an exercise, Tony? I mean, I think, I think you know, if we look at the goals of the program, which is to gain data, yes, absolutely. I think there's a lot to learn here. Um, like I said, I, I do think we're in a transition. Um, I, I think that... You know, what, what are the options for us, Sterling? I mean, you can try to prohibit these things, but there are a lot of benefits from this technology. And to be honest, they were out there already. Yeah. So we have a real responsibility to step up and get in there and, and define the rules so that it can be safe for people. I'll, I'll also add, you know, a lot of millennials, um, so maybe people born after 1981, they're choosing this type of transportation. And I understand that by 2025, about 75% of our workforce will be made up of millennials. And many of them are actively choosing not to drive. They don't get driver's licenses. They don't own cars. And e-scooters for them can be a vital link either to get directly where they're going or to get to transportation that then allows them to get onto their place that they are going. And they can actually take these on the bus or on C-bus in the case of North Van. Um, So that's a, a pretty critical piece. Tony Valenti, thanks very much for this. We wish you continued success with the experiment. We'll talk some more about it as we get a little closer to the end. Thanks very much for today. Thanks very much. Great to talk to you. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live 6 to 9 weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. (laughs) For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.